Hello, and welcome to One Real Good Thing, where we dive into one thing you can do today to propel your life in a healthy direction. I'm Ellie Krieger, and in this episode, I'm talking with the incomparable Marion Nessel, who has been one of the most important voices in food and nutrition for decades. She chaired the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University from 1988 to 2003, and she's a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell University. She's written and edited more than a dozen books, including the groundbreaking expose, Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health. She continues to blog regularly on her website, foodpolitics.com. Her one real good thing is to eat real food. Listen to learn what she means by that and why it makes more of a difference than you might realize. Marion Nessel, thank you so much for being here. It is an absolute delight to have you on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure and it's always good to see you. Yeah, so we get to see each other socially now and then through our an organization that we're both involved in called Le Dame d'Escoffier. And I always love being able to hang out with you and raise a glass and really great to be able to be here with you and share your wisdom with my listeners. Because uh, if you don't know about Marion Nessel, I mean, she's a force in, in all the great ways um, in the food and nutrition world. So it's really an honor to have her here. Um, so Marion, your one real good thing is to eat real food. So as a lover of the word real when it comes to food, as is apparent by the name of this podcast, One Real Good Thing, and my TV show, Ellie's Real Good Food, we are very much on the same page. But I would like to know what you mean by real food and why it is so important from your perspective and from the science, why it is so important to do this, to eat real food. This is your one thing that you picked, and, and there's, I'm sure, good reason for it. Well, there are plenty of reasons. Um, first of all, it tastes better. Um, <laughs> Taste, yes. <laughs> oh, let's just start with that. Um, you know, when I think of real food, I think of the foods that you can buy in the supermarket. You walk up and down the aisles, you pick up the produce that you go around the periphery of the supermarket and pick up the produce and the meat and the dairy and so forth. And then you take them home and cook them, or you get somebody who's really good to cook them for you. Um, and the um, uh, this is what we evolved to eat, more or less. Uh, you know, the, our ancestors were hunters and gatherers. They ate real food. They ate food from the ground, from the trees, from the bushes, those that they could catch if they were animals. And they, um, and uh, we're healthier if we eat that way. Where we start getting into trouble is uh, when we start eating foods from the center aisles, uh, what, are, what used to be called junk food and are now increasingly called ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed being a specific category of processed foods that goes way beyond preserving or adding sugar or salt or doing that kind of thing, but really transforms the foods from something that looks like something that grows on a tree or is an animal into something that really doesn't resemble it in any way at all, is full of additives. And the way that um, I define ultra-processed foods, the easiest way, is, is, is they're not something that you can make in your home kitchen. 
So the, the big distinction is between corn on the cob, which is not processed, canned corn, which is processed, but it's fine. Um, and then Dorito corn chips, which are enormously complicated. You couldn't possibly make them in your home kitchen because you can't buy those ingredients at a supermarket and you don't have the equipment to make them. And they matter because this is a big new concept in nutrition that's just come out within the last 10 years. Um, and they matter because there's now been enormous amounts of research that show that people who consume a lot of their diet as ultra-processed foods uh, have worse diets, they gain weight, they're at risk for type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and so forth. These days, COVID-19. Um, and we even have a controlled clinical trial that shows that eating ultra-processed foods encourages people to eat 500 more calories a day than they ordinarily would if they weren't eating ultra-processed foods. I don't know why this is the case. And certainly the people who were involved in that study didn't even realize they were eating more. But there's something about these foods that makes people want to eat more and more and more of them. Um, you know, some people like to use the word addictive. I don't, but it's okay. You get the idea. There's something about these foods that means that you can't eat just one. You got to keep eating them. And that's not true of salads. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know. You eat a salad, you get to the end of that salad, you're done. You don't need any more salad. Right. Uh, but, and it doesn't mean it wasn't delicious. It doesn't mean it wasn't right. an absolutely enticingly delicious salad. But you stop. And uh, But if you have chips in front of you or cookies that you like, you can't stop. And uh, And that's really interesting. I mean, there's something about the way we've evolved that does that. And of course, food marketers love it because their goal is to get us to eat more, not less. Right. That's how they sell more food. I mean, there's only a certain number of people and the only way you can sell more food is to get those people to eat more. <laughs> and then right? boy, are they good at it. Right. And how interesting that this clinical research shows that people essentially ate 500 fewer calories a day without even trying, Right. They on weren't the on the food that is minimally right. processed compared to the food that is ultra processed. So this notion that simply switching gears into more minimally processed real food, you could feasibly be eating fewer calories and more in line with probably what your body really needs. And not um, even realize it. And not even realize it, not even have to really try, which fascinates me so much because I think so many people feel that keeping their weight in a healthy place is such a deeply difficult effort. So I love this notion of not having to try, really. Well, it, it's really interesting to me because, you know, I wrote a book called Soda Politics that came out a few years ago. I didn't write it as a diet book. I wrote it as an advocacy manual. I was trying to explain to people what they needed to do and what they could do to get fewer sodas in the community, to encourage less drinking of sugar-sweetened beverages, and that kind of thing. I mean, that was it purpose. When the book came out, I got, I can't even tell you how many letters I got saying, I read your book, I stopped drinking sodas, I lost 10 pounds. I read your book, I stopped drinking sodas, I lost 20 pounds, 40 pounds, the record was 80. Somebody wrote and said that was the only change he made in his diet and he lost 80 pounds. 
you know, over the course of some months, but still. Yeah. Um, so, so that tells you something, that there's something about these kinds of food that make you eat more, and eating more is not good for health. Unless right. you're starving. Unless, unless you're starving. you need more, <laughs> right? Eating, need you need more. to eat according to what your body needs, and it help. It, it's hard to when you're sucking down sugar, <laughs> your body can't give you feedback really in that way. Apparently, apparently not. And so you know, just so for me, dietary advice is really easy. Um, you know, I like to quote Michael Pollan's seven-word mantra: uh, "Eat food, not too much, mostly plants." I think that takes care of it. Yeah. And it should be really simple and food should be delicious and everybody should be loving what they're eating. It's one of life's greatest pleasures. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to dig in a little bit to a couple of the things that you mentioned. So thank you for that amazing synopsis. And it's on point to me as far as I'm concerned in every way. Um, when you talk about, you know, shopping the perimeter aisles of the supermarket, I think that's true. These are the fresh foods. These are the foods that are closest to their original source, as you say. But to be fair, of course, and I think I'm sure that you account for this as well, in those center aisles are also things like dried beans, mm. oats, whole grain flour, um, barley, food. things like this. I'm mm. sorry? Frozen foods. Frozen oh. foods that, you know, frozen peas or whatever that are not adulterated beyond being frozen. So there are, so these are processed to a degree. And I think you started to really talk about the notion of minimally processed versus ultra processed. And I think it is really an important distinction because I think there's a lot of confusion around the word processed um, and also a lot of confusion about the center aisle. So you're not saying, uh, if you are, please correct me, but I don't think you're saying don't eat rolled oats or steel cut oats, which are in the... No, I'm saying, you know, the, the thing to avoid is ultra processed foods. How do you tell whether it's ultra processed? You can't make it in your home kitchen. That's exactly. The, that's the easiest way. You know, you can take peas and stick them in a freezer. You buy frozen peas. They may have some salt added, but that's minimally processed. Um, you know, and the difference between those foods is in their physiological effects or in something that we don't yet understand. But I think eventually we will understand what it is. You know, Michael Moss wrote a book called Salt, Sugar, Fat, and he's got another one out since in which he talks about how the food industry has formulated ultra processed food products uh, to make them addictive. I mean, and he uses the word. Um, and it's not that food companies are trying to make people fat. They're not. They're just trying to sell more food. That's all they're trying to do. But what that means is that you as an individual are fighting an enormous marketing apparatus, an enormous food system that makes trillions of dollars a year. And its entire purpose is to get you to eat more, not less. And it's important to keep that in mind. And it actually is very empowering to keep that in mind because nobody wants to be a sucker, right? <laughs> nobody wants to be manipulated. So if you start to tune in, even this is a wonderful way to teach teenagers about food. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they start to tune in at that age, the last thing they want to be is manipulated mm -hmm. <laughs> and they want to have agency over their lives more than ever. You know, uh, they want all the benefits of being an adult, of, of having agency over their lives. So if you teach them about the manipulation of marketing, mm -hmm. that it really can um, influence their behavior, I find. Um, and I, I bet there's research on it, although I can't pull any up 
any studies up in my mind just yet, but back to this notion of process. So I think in general, we think of the word process as bad. It's generally used synonymously with unhealthy, but I think we have to you know, be careful with the nuance there, as you're saying, and pro- all food is processed to some degree, right? We cut it, we go home, we boil it, we roast it. That's all technically speaking processing. So it's not that that we're talking about. It's not the frozen food. It's not the dried beans. It's this hyper-processed food that, as you say, and I'll repeat it for the third time because it's really worth it, foods that you cannot even conceptualize how to make at home. Um, So I think that's a really good way to look at it. And we kind of know it's like it's like we might not be able to entirely describe the attributes of ultra-processed food, but we kind of know it when we see it, I think, most well, of us. Well, let me, let me give an example that I think is really telling, and that's ice cream. Um, I have an ice cream maker. I love ice cream. And we make a three-ingredient ice cream, right? Milk, cream, sugar, then all four ingredients, vanilla, um, or whatever we're throwing in. As the when am I coming over to try some? Because that sounds delicious. <laughs> um, there's a big difference between that kind of ice cream and the ice cream that you buy commercially that has 20 or 25 ingredients listed on the ingredient list. That ice cream is ultra processed. It's filled with fillers and flavors and colors and all kinds of things that um, are that are there to make it shelf stable, to make it have exactly the right consistency that they think, you know, to have it the, be the right color and all of that. That's ultra processed. And it has a very, very different effect on the amount that you eat for reasons that, you know, we just don't understand. But there they are. The observations are very clear. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you're eating real food, right? So a lot of people think um, they're getting these processed foods because it's more convenient. I mean, it certainly is more convenient to pick up a pint of ice cream or a quart of ice cream or whatever it is, um, then make it yourself. It doesn't take as long. It could be on demand. You can have it right away when you're making it. You don't have to wash the pots afterwards. Right. So, I mean, so in a way there's, it's interesting for me just from that point of view, because for example, if you're going to make brownies or make ice cream from scratch, um, there's a little bit of a preciousness to it in a good way that makes it special and that makes it maybe less often and less immediate gratification. That's a good thing. Okay. Plus there are benefits to actually working with the ingredients. There's satisfaction in aroma of cooking and so on, which always fascinates me. Um, But what about convenience foods? You know, people are struggling all the time Mm -hmm. with time, with um, economy, trying to, you know, make food work for them in all of these different ways. Um, So how do you, and also effort, you know, many people come home late at the end of the day. How do you actually do this with real food? Now I know I've literally devoted my life (laughs) to recipes that are fast, easy, affordable, doable, manageable, all of these things with real food. So I live that answer, I feel, but I'd love to hear for you. I, I personally have certain convenience foods that are not expensive, that are um, minimally processed, that I rely on. And I was wondering what yours may be, because I think people, well, I have to admit, you know, my family members, people who live in my household, I will not mention them by name, 
when I'm not there, they're busting out the boxes of this that you just <laughs> add water and put it in the microwave. And it drives me completely nuts, but mm -hmm. I can't control them. But, um, but I, if they only knew, I think, or would listen to me of how many convenient, inexpensive options there are that are minimally processed. So what are some of your go-tos in that oh, arena? Oh, I'm going to have to think about that. But what you made me think of, which is not what you're asking, um, <laughs> is, is how political all this is. Because it's not only that the ultra-processed foods are convenient, they're also backed by enormous marketing budgets just enormous. So that's what you're supposed to eat. Um, and the, um, the, the idea that uh, you're going to, you have, you're on a budget, they're also backed by federal policies that make the ingredients in ultra processed foods much cheaper so that they cost less um, relatively, or you feel like they cost less, and they actually do cost less. Because if you look at the prices of foods and how they've changed over the last 30 years, say, or 40 years, um, the prices of all foods have gone up, especially very lately. But the prices of real foods have gone up much, much more than the prices of ultra-processed foods. And those have either stayed the same or gone up only a little. And a lot of that has to do with federal policies, of which my favorite is the marketing budget. Food companies get to deduct the cost of marketing as business expenses, which means that all of the efforts that are going into trying to sell sugary breakfast cereals to your kids and get your kids to demand those cereals, um, as opposed to you know, a boring cereal like uh, shredded wheat, which is the kind of thing that I eat, you know, that has no added sugar or salt and is minimally processed. Well, even though I can't make it in my home kitchen, that may be an exception. The, uh, I, mean, I, I wonder how I could do that. Yeah, um, you probably could, theoretically. <laughs> theoretically. Um, well, it's still, yeah. But it, you know, I, I mean, instead of that, the sugary cereals that, are being marketed to kids. Um, that has to do with the system of where the profits are. Ultra-processed foods are the most profitable foods in the supermarket. Yeah, that's just so frustrating. <laughs> but I think it's interesting when we look at cost, I think we have to take a wider angle view. Because if you look, there is some investment, in fact, in eating the most nutritious food. So we have to take there's an investment in our, our well-being long-term. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a definite the cause causation mm -hmm. there, really. If we're not eating good food, we're going to probably not be well down the road. Um, so yeah, we saw that during the pandemic where the people who were most susceptible to the bad outcomes from COVID-19 were old people, but particularly old people who were overweight, had type 2 diabetes, had you know, high blood pressure, um, and were not in very great health to begin with. Um, so it seems to me, it's if you want to be healthy, you have to eat healthfully. I mean, that seems so obvious. <laughs> yeah. And you have to figure out a way to do that on whatever your budget is. Yeah. And it would be great if our society made that easier. But also, I think just having that mental shift individually of saying, this is an investment in myself. Mm -hmm. So if these 
carrots cost marginally more than these Doritos, <laughs> um, you know, it's worth it. Um, it's funny because co- going in that line of thinking to exercise, just getting off slightly off track here a little bit. I often say to myself, oh no, I can't afford to exercise tomorrow. I just can't afford the time. And then I always have this voice in the back of my head saying, honey, you can't afford not to. (laughs) And when I think really long-term, what's really my value? What do I really care about? Do I care about getting absolutely everything done tomorrow or do I care about my long-term well-being? And it's a sort of analogy there as well. So absolutely, um, it's something of an investment. But I think also when we look at food, very often it's the cost per calorie, for example, that we're looking at. But if we look at cost per nutrient, the math's kind of different. It Mm. actually costs less if you look at it per nutritional value kind of thing. So, So there's different ways to think about it. Yeah, I would say one other thing is that it's not only a long-term strategy, it's a short-term strategy. You feel better if you eat well and are and are active. And and you know what, what I think is really important is that activity doesn't require going to a gym. It doesn't require going and doing fancy equipment. It just requires getting outside and moving. Um, and you know, doing something like go for a walk in some beautiful place, it's good for your soul. <laughs> totally, totally. And so, and so going back to real food though, so is real food, right? And to your point, it it does feel good. You feel more energized, you feel less sluggish, your digestive system, the four hours later will be better <laughs> if you eat something really wonderfully fresh and and unprocessed, minimally processed. Um, so I'm going to throw out some of my um, favorite minimally processed foods that I think are so fast and easy. One, well, one in particular is my favorite lunch, which is literally a pile of pre-washed greens. Ooh. I pre-wash them myself very often. I like sort of meal prep in that way. Um, but sometimes I buy them already pre-washed. Uh, a pile of pre-washed greens, tuna, that's in the jar with olive oil in it, really nice tuna. And I just put that over it with the oil and then a squeeze of lemon and then literally whatever other random vegetables are in my refrigerator. And I just like toss that together. And it is a fabulously delicious lunch that takes three minutes (laughs) on a busy work day to make. So that is one of my go-to convenient um, that tuna that I use in the oil is not inexpensive, but you could, um, you know, use a less expensive brand of tuna as well. I do it with cheap canned tuna. I think the cheapest canned tuna is pretty good. <laughs> See, <laughs> a nice squeeze of lemon, maybe some lemon zest. And the more there. expensive canned tuna has methyl mercury, has mercury in it. So you more. Don't, you don't want yeah. too much of that. Yeah, that's true. That's good for about um, one or two days a week to eat that. Mm-hmm. So uh, is the limit on that one, but now and then is fine. Um, And so here's my question for you that I think is fun to entertain. Is pizza real food in your book? Do you think pizza is (laughs) real? Absolutely. You know, it depends on how it's made and who's doing the making. But if you're, I mean, I just can't think of anything more delicious it's so true. I feel like it's, I, I joke often, Marion, I joke often that I had a child, so I had an excuse to eat pizza more often. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, what's happened to pizza is that it's gotten bigger. 
And, and that's the part that is, and pizzas used to be 10 inches across. You know, it used to have a little board, maybe 12 inches across. Now they're 16, 18, 20. I mean, they're enormous. And if you do the math on the volume, the bigger the pan, the math goes up very high. And suddenly you're, instead of you know, the Department of Agriculture's standard slice of pizza is um, 200 calories. Yeah. When was a slice of pizza 200 calories? It's been yeah. a long, long time. That's like half. That's like, I would say it's, I'm sure, double that now. And one thing also is that there's so much more cheese than is traditional. Right. So if you go to a real Neapolitan pizza place, there's just a lovely amount of cheese. It, it's not, you're not wanting more cheese, but it's not dripping with cheese and oil and the whole like cheese stuffed crust concept that now is a thing. Um, so I think that's part of it too, that, that really keeping it sort of um, modest, I guess you could say, although that's such a boring word, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the most delicious meals I can ever remember having was in um, some town in Italy where um, a friend and I wandered into some little place and uh, out came a pizza and an arugula salad. It was the first time I had ever had arugula and it was, you know, sharp and fresh. And this pizza was to die for. It was so good. The tomato sauce was delicious. I don't even think it had any cheese on it. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. the Italian pizzas don't, I mean, there's so many different kinds. Actually, that's funny. Cause you bring to mind another one of my quick meals is sometimes I will get a slice of pizza from a local place here that I know they make with great ingredients. And I'll just take a pile of arugula, a big pile of arugula and pile <laughs> it on top. And it's a salad pizza, but it's literally a pizza with salad on top. And I love that combination. And I think, yeah, it came from my travels in Italy too, where they serve the fresh greens right on top of the pizza. Right. It's fabulous. Yeah. So you could eat real and eat pizza. Yay. Okay. That's the answer I wanted. And you can eat ice cream. <laughs> yes. Right. And it's just about really paying attention and, and ideally some of those foods, making them yourself. I always find actually going back to pizza, not that I'm too obsessed with it, but making it myself, just taking like a piece of pita and putting some sauce on it and some mozzarella cheese. And then again, with the vet random vegetables that I have in my refrigerator on top, or maybe some greens, um, it's healthier. I enjoy it just as much, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And the portion is so much more manageable. It's so much more appropriate for me. I feel, I feel much more satisfied without being overstuffed after I eat that. So I think whenever you're making something yourself, you have that real advantage as far as that goes. Yeah, I think the portion size issue is really critical. You know, I'm fond of saying that if I had one nutrition concept I could get across to the American people, it would be that larger portions have more calories. <laughs> it is so not intuitively obvious. Um, and it makes all the difference in the world in how much you're eating. And we're human. There's something about being human that means that anything is put in front of us we want to eat. Um, yeah, we're know. evolved. We're evolved to to consume. I mean, yeah. this how in terms of human history, it's really been quite a little sliver of time that we've had excess to deal oh, with. Yeah. Mostly, are we evolved to deal with scarcity? Yeah, just since the Second World War um, in the United States, and of course, there are places all over the world where people don't have enough food, but that's not our problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, it 
as humans, it kind of is, but it's not our problem it, that we're dealing with for our own bodies, I think is what you're saying. Mm. Uh, or as, a, or as our society mostly. Um, so based on all of this, here's, I really wanted to ask you about this because what's your take on plant-based meats on these fake, <laughs> I guess it's the ultimate in fake, right? I mean, so on my TV show, um, on, on healthy appetite, I would often say, give it the farm or factory test. If it reads, if the ingredient list reads like it comes from a farm, then you're probably on the right track. And if it reads like it comes from a factory, then you might want to choose something else. So I can't think of anything more factory and less real than these plant-based meats, which are billed as being more healthful and better for you and better for the planet and all this. So where do you stand on that? I'd love to get your take on it. Well, they're unambiguously ultra-processed. You can't possibly make them in your home kitchen. Um, But I have to confess not understanding them. Um, I'm not a vegetarian myself, but I do eat a largely plant-based diet because I happen to like eating that way. Um, And I don't get the whole thing about why you need to have an artificial meat. If you don't want to eat meat, you don't have to eat it. Uh, You know, vegetarian diets are fine. Vegan diets are fine. Um, If you have decided that you're not going to eat meat for whatever reason, health, environmental, ethics, animal rights, whatever your reasoning is, you don't have to. Um, So I don't get it. With that said, I've had it explained to me any number of times. And I think my favorite explanation was of a young mother who said to me, but Marion, I could take my kids to fast food restaurants for the first time. Well, I just didn't know what to make of that. Um, Really, that was something that everybody felt deprived about. Um, People tell me they miss the taste of meat. They, They just really, really miss it. And the people who are making the artificial meats are saying they're not making these products just for vegetarians, they want people, they want people who are meat eaters to eat these products because they feel that the products are certainly better for animals. You know, they believe we shouldn't be raising animals for food at all, that that's unethical and immoral, and we really shouldn't be doing that. Um, So they're trying to replace what you know, I think humans evolved to eat meat just like they evolved to eat everything else. Um, but if you decide on whatever grounds you have that you don't want to do that, um, you can have a perfectly healthy diet without it. I don't know. I don't really like the products very much, but I've tasted them. They're not bad. Uh, particularly the meats are pretty good. But the best veggie burger I ever, ever had was at Blue Hill in Manhattan, where they were working on using waste products. And they had the leftover pulp from carrots and beets that were used to make juices. And they fried those up into veggie burgers. I thought they were fabulous. Oh, yeah. I love a good veggie burger. I absolutely do. And I love a good meat burger of just about any kind of meat whether it's turkey or lamb or beef. Um, and I, um, I agree. I don't really understand this like artificial meat thing. I think it is the definition of ultra processed. 
And I think what's really important to note is that it's not, they are not necessarily better. I think they're officially not better for you. I don't think we know that yet. From a human health perspective. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure we're ever going to find out, but, um, you know, I don't, um, certainly I've seen the calculations on um, the environmental impact and it, those are always very hard to read because it depends on what assumptions they're making. Um, right. And right. different people have different assumptions about that. I just don't know. I mean, there are studies that were sponsored by the makers of the, um, um, I, I think it was impossible. I can't remember which one it was, whether it was impossible or beyond sponsored it, uh, that showed that some biomarker of something was better if you ate the non-meat alternatives, but is that better for health? I, I have no idea. I think the most important nutrition issue for health for Americans is eating too much. And that though, you know, the, that's the problem that we have to solve. 74% of Americans or adults, according to the CDC, are higher, way more than is considered healthy. And the, um, you know, that's a big problem. And it brings us really full circle to what you started talking about in the beginning is this clinical research showing that you can really bring your caloric intake into a healthier zone simply by eating real food, focusing on real food. So that really is a good full circle sort of moment. And then just with just regard to the um, the uh, plant-based meats, I just just to sum up there, I think what we're saying is it's a big question mark. We don't really know the data and where it's going to lead. And but I think we can agree probably that a veggie burger made with real um, lentils, mushrooms, plants is most likely the best option. Yeah, and can be absolutely delicious. Of course, anything fried is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm excited about your new book. Can you tell us about your upcoming book? Well, it's really interesting. It's a memoir. Um, it's my first venture into fiction. <laughs> is the way I like to put it. You know, I'm a nonfiction writer and uh, writing a memoir was extraordinarily challenging. I did it because it was my pandemic project. I couldn't <laughs> so it's any... a fictional memoir. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know what your memory is like, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I did try to do as much fact checking as I could. And I was kind of shocked by my poor memory of places and dates and people and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I did the best I could with it, but a memoir is, it's not a biography. It's, um, it's a account of how you remember events in your life. And it's a professional, in my case, this is a professional memoir. Um, I'm not talking a lot about my personal life uh, because what this book is supposed to be doing is answering the questions that I get asked all the time, which is how did you do it? Um, you know, how did you get interested in food? How did you happen to create food studies programs at NYU? How did you become an advocate um, you know, fighting the food industry? You know, how do you deal with the food industry's reaction to the kinds of things you've written? Those kinds of questions, I get asked them so often 
that I thought it was worthwhile to sit down and try to deal with it in a pretty serious way. So that's what I did during the pandemic. It's coming out in October. It's called Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. Um, and I hope it's fun for people to read. Well, you have certainly blazed the trail that we're all kind of following behind. So appreciate that so much and really appreciate you being here to talk with us today and share your wisdom. And I I hope that everyone is inspired to uh, eat real food. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Take care, Marion. See you soon. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a better understanding of what it means to eat real food and why it matters so much. Go to elliekrieger.com to learn more about Marion Nessel and join me next time for another One Real Good Thing.